Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, boy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello and welcome to Dose of Ether. This is episode number five. And on your week of Ethereum today, what we're talking about is Lattice and Grid Plus and their their innovations in hardware wallets, uh, as well as other hardware wallet technology fresh on the market. We'll talk about Tezos. The main net is live. So if you as an, as an Ethereum user need to know about this. Uh, Loom Network and how they challenge the, the, the identity of Tezos and other uh, delegated proof of stake mechanisms and their amazing progress in the space. Uh, we'll briefly touch on multi-collateral DAI and, and their uh, recent work on their stablecoin and new improvement proposals for Ethereum. Uh, that is your uh, show for today, and we'll just get right into it. Lucian, uh, have you had a good week? Uh, I have. It's been busy, learning a lot. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to see you again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See you on a uh, podcast, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're not, we actually don't have video because we're, we're sparing our listeners from, from internet issues. But um, yeah, let's, let's jump into it. So you've been doing a lot of research this week on hardware wallets, I've had a lot of experience with hardware wallets um, just because it's an important part of being an active member of the crypto blockchain community. So tell us about what you learned this week about uh, uh, the progress there. Yeah, so um, on there's a new product called the Zimbit that basically uh, clips into a Raspberry Pi and it allows you to um, cryptographically sign um things without having the keys actually on the operating system. So I'm sure anyone that has interacted with an Ethereum network has heard the importance of having and using a hardware wallet. And the main reason simply is that you don't want to store your private keys on a piece of software that could be compromised. And if a hacker gains access to, let's say, the Linux kernel on your Raspberry Pi, um, what ends up happening is that they could find the private keys, uh, take possession of them, and basically sign a transaction to give them um, exclusive access. Basically, send all the money to themselves. And yeah, and and the 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 technologies out there available today for users to protect themselves from that kind of software hacking attack is things like Ledger, Nano S, and and Trezor, right? And those, how, how do they differ from other ways of storing your private keys? Yeah, so um, the people at Grid Plus wrote one of my favorite security blogs basically describing the differences between the security model underlying Ledger and that underlying Treasure. And uh, the difference is that the Ledger has um, a separate chip from the chip that is uh, interacting with your computer that does nothing besides sign and generate cryptographic keys. And Mm. the importance of this is that it's as if you can't get the the private keys off of the chip at all. Um, And the attack surface changes, right? While Treasure, you have to make sure that you have the right firmware 
running on the device for it to uh, generate keys correctly and uh, act as it's supposed to. So if someone tampers with the um, software on a treasure, then it's actually going to um, change how the device is going to work and possibly compromise your security. While does it compromise your security, or just does it just brick the device and not allow the any access to the private key? Um, well, in a treasure, what you can do is you can actually change the software that's running on the device so that, for example, you ask a user for, um, for his seed phrase or, um, and then you take it off of the device. Um, mm-hmm. if you can change the software running on the treasure, you. so you can do like a mat- man in the middle kind of, uh, just present them with a UI that's not actually the tre- treasure UI. Um, and get them to give you their seed, even if it's locked away in that chip, um, because they have access to the software, you know, that controls the LCD screen, they can presumably fish the user out of their private key. Yes, in a, in a sense. I mean, there's a really easy to think about um, visualization of this issue, and it's that the treasure has this tamper evident seal on the box, while uh, ledgers actually advertise that they don't need this type of seal right. because it doesn't necessarily compromise your security if someone has um, messed with the software as long as you generate a truly random key um, you can't take the keys off of the device and sign transactions that uh, that you don't want to right and Um, The concept underlying this is uh, a secure enclave. Um, Secure enclaves are in a lot of devices, but I think the most tangible example is a a chip on a credit card. Um, Ironically, the chip on a credit card is very similar to the computer chip that generates um, digital signatures on a ledger. And uh, the similarities are that it basically has the same kind of functionality and the same kind of exposure. It's just that on a ledger, it allows you to generate more keys. It's as if you can generate more chips um, on your credit card. Now, Mm. how does this, um, how do you improve on this, right? Like we've been using hardware wallets for a number of years now, and it's kind of annoying to have to take out your hardware wallet plug it into your computer, um, make sure that the transaction that you're signing is actually what you want, which is in and of itself a security issue. How do you know the transaction um, that you are signing is actually correct or if someone's manipulating the data that's on your computer? Again, anything connected to your operating system can get hacked. Um, So you can always get uh, manipulated into signing something you don't agree with. Well, the guys um, at Grid Plus thought about this, and since they're building a um, an IoT device that allows you to generate and automatically sell electricity back to a power grid, they needed a device that could automate uh, the signature of and um, usage of private keys. Um, on behalf of the users. So mm. what they've done is they've actually taken the chip um, that basically 
uh, has the logic of what the transaction looks like and they put it into another separate chip, right? So it's as if like the logic that determines what kind of transaction you're willing to sign is itself on a secure chip, right? So that just reduces the attack surface to the point where a hacker wouldn't be able to benefit even if they got access to lower level type data because they couldn't manipulate it to get the private key to sign anything other than a transaction useful for that for that service that's being offered um kind of the idea the private keys are actually still held on physical devices um in the case of lattice it's on um chips that themselves contain uh, elliptic curve um, cryptographic keys um, so they still have the same issue in which um, the private keys aren't on the physical device. They're on cards. And um, the addition of having a secure chip um, that can actually determine what types of rules you are willing to sign has the ability to pre-sign or permission specific types of transactions beforehand. Right. Right. You know how you have like stop orders or stop gaps um, in exchanges? Well, you're essentially creating a specific uh, condition in which a transaction can happen on your behalf. Right. Right. And this is this is like something, you know, in practical terms that that I've dealt with uh, in running a Tezos node. Um, as a, a, you know, now that they've, they've launched their beta net, but in, as part of the beta net, or they've launched it in mainnet, but as part of their beta net, um, I actually set up, you know, a, a infrastructure such that I could protect my, um, the majority of my funds while also running a baking rig that would validate blocks in the protocol um, and have the right or the access to the staking funds that, that, um, that are available, but not putting them at risk. So even if the device that the ledger is on is hacked, there is a paired ledger that contains the majority of the funds. So even if that um, system is insecure, you still are protected because your private key and, and the majority of your funds are locked away somewhere else. Yeah, it reminds me of um, like a hot wallet and a cold wallet type setup, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you want your hot wallet that has a larger attack surface, but it's easier to use, right? Um, people often use mobile phone wallets for like spare change, um, while they have cold storage wallets for like long-term investments. And it's interesting that um, despite the fact that you're running a delegated proof of stake system that's supposed to incentivize you to deposit your cold storage funds as uh, part of the stake so that you can generate funds and get a return off of uh, the funds that you already have um, because essentially both the hardware and the actual staking mechanism and the network itself, uh, in Tezos's case, is um, still new and early. It's uh, it still forces you to kind of be more precautious and leave. Well, I think it's you know they they recognize that you know in order to get proof of stake to work, you have to have your 
validators risking their stake and be exposed to these slashing conditions. But um, but ultimately, these these are people who are running real world hardware, either in the cloud or you know somewhere um, in in the physical you know in their in their own property or some other property that they have access to. Um, but they don't want to keep all their funds on this computer. Like it's one thing to have you know fifty thousand dollars in mining equipment in a location that you can secure with cameras, but having fifty thousand dollars in digital currency available on a connected internet device is a very, very different problem, uh, very different attack surface. Like for somebody to steal your mining rig, they'd have to take your physical hardware and the little Bitcoin or whatever that you mined in the meantime that you didn't yet transfer to your cold storage. So uh, yeah, if Tezos, the the protocol, the developers had to decide, you know, how do we keep the ability to slash our validators but also not expose them to the huge risk of keeping their funds available on a device that might get hacked. Um, and their solution was essentially having a reserve requirement where let's say, you know, you have uh, 10,000 tokens or whatever the number is. I think 10,000 for Tezos is the minimum number of Tezos you, you need to be a validator uh, in their de- delegate proof of stake system. 90% of that can be in effectively cold storage. The other 10% is used as a deposit. That's what's on your baking rig that does the validating. So there's always this deposit that can be slashed at any given time, but you're using your full stake weight as, as the, to, to generate rewards and to validate blocks on the network. And it's kind of interesting that um, hacks aren't the only cause for concern. For example, um, a lot of delegated proof of stake systems, in order to guarantee liveliness, will actually stake uh, slash you if you're offline for a while, right? Mm-hmm. But network outages, um, your computer malfunctions, um, there's a power outage. There's several hardware-related things that can occur. Um, that can actually affect your income from this type of activity. And uh, it's not even necessarily malicious intent, which slashing is actually um, required for in order to prevent. It also kind of comes from this whole liveliness and availability of data that kind of requires you to penalize people even though they were good intentioned. Um, Right. Just It's it's an interesting problem, right? Because you're... you're It's like... like uh, you know the, the the software protections that they've had on software on, on on music and video media. You know, it's like they're trying to protect what is it D, DMC laws or no, not not DMC um, uh, DRM DRM. Remember DRM? Like we, we used to talk about this all the time a decade ago. It's the most important problem. But like you know, they're punishing regular users when. Um, when in reality they're trying to create the economic incentives to prevent bad actors. So in the music industry, they created all this software to prevent you from copying your music and sending it to your friend. And that just hurt normal users. It never stopped piraters from stealing the, 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 the music and putting it on LimeWire or wherever else. And it's kind of a similar thing here. If protocol developers put these huge slashing conditions because your, your node went offline for 30 minutes, well, you're gonna just lose contributors to the network. And so the balance is really tough. Like I know in my case, if you, my internet goes down, really I, I actually lose access to rewards. 
Um, the slashing is not such a problem because th those conditions happen if you're down for a week at a time, which is not really typical, even if you're running, you know, your personal operation and you're not, you know, involved in doing it full time or anything. It's still pretty reasonable to be up like once a day or, or once every couple days. Um, and as long as you check in, you're not going to get slashed. But here's the problem. If you're an investor in a protocol, if you're not operating in the community as a node or uh, mining or curating or doing something then you're losing out on those rewards and you're getting your 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 uh, asset value is effectively decreasing over time because those networks are producing rewards and generating them at your expense if you're not also contributing as a validator or miner and so on um, and so for me as an investor i'm looking at I'm trying to operate these nodes so that I protect my investment. And every day that I'm not operating a node is is potential returns that I'm losing. Um, so the incentive is already really strong, I think, for a, a good actor. But but they do have to have these slashing conditions to, to prevent um, bad actors from running away with, with tons of money. And, and they just have to balance the trade-off with the user experience. I've always thought that a negative consequence of moving to a delegated proof of stake system, especially if you hold sufficient tokens to say that you have a part of your net worth uh, invested into a network, um, is that essentially you kind of always have to be plugged in. It's uh, a requirement now that you have to worry about the constant upkeep and maintenance of uh, the liveliness of your connection to this network now. Um, it's it's changed the entire uh, the entire economic model for venture capitalists, but it also changes it a lot for users because um, now you're not just using an application; you're contributing to its success in a way that is very active, proactive. And to get the most out of these systems, you have to you know take control of your private keys and be your own custodian, and you don't have the same kinds of customer support expectations that you do with traditional centralized internet operators, right? Um, so we're coming up with totally new models for, um, you know, for contributing to these platforms, for acting as responsible users, for doing customer service that haven't been even invented yet. So we're, we're, we're still a work in progress, right? Yeah, we're making passive income active again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it actually is in a way, right? Um, so, so moving on, you know, I think Tezos is a good example of, you know, you could call it a successful delegated proof of stake platform, but their main net just went live um, and they haven't taken a vote, right? This, the, the whole idea here, it makes it different from Ethereum is that it's on-chain governance and the users who have stake in the system are expected to vote on protocol improvements and to give rewards directly to developers who propose those things and contribute to them. So that's a totally untested model um, and flies a lot in the face of how, you know, Vitalik envisions his kind of hands-off um, approach or offline governance kind of uh, values. Yeah, there's, um, there's some benefit to having um, decisions made on the protocol level. But at the same time, I think uh, technology development isn't exactly democratic. And um, there was a previous Bitcoin podcast uh, episode with Hasib regarding mm -hmm. the fact that blockchains are not democracies. 
And there are some really big challenges with the concept of one token, one vote, right? You are, by definition, highly skewed towards the people who have a disproportionate amount of tokens, right? So investors have a disproportionate uh, voice and... um, then you kind of see how that can be manipulated within uh, the current stock market, right? In which mm. the investors overly represented and then institutional investors start abusing their power and actually start changing the actual culture and society. Um, and I feel like blockchain itself is nuanced and new enough that it's more comparable to like a rapid prototyping team um, there's a like a term in engineering circles called skunk works, and yeah. <laughs> the story behind that was that there was this team from I think uh, Lockheed Martin that built a plane from the ground up using minimum team with uh, a very diverse group of people from different segments of the country um, who were just like completely dedicated to. Uh, developing and building something new, something better. And they were able to do it without any institutional or organizational impediment. And they were able to do it faster, cheaper. Um, And the concept of skunk works actually came because they were like in a tent uh, next to some factory that smelled terrible. Uh, Except, yeah, that's how I see blockchain development. Yeah, I think you're. I think blockchain (laughs) is the skunk works of the internet. I guess you could say, like it's it's totally self-directed communities all around the world working together on a common vision, and and it's messy as hell. But but damn if it it isn't working uh, towards something big. Uh, Let's let's move on. I I think um, one really interesting topic here related to delegated proof of stake and, and the developments there is Loom Network and their amazing progress. Yeah. The, okay. I, it's hey, really I gotta, impressive. I gotta, hold, hold on, Lucia. I, okay. I, we'll pause there. I've got to go get this guy downstairs. I'll be right back. Okay. Cool. Good place to stop. All right. Yeah, one sec. One second, Lucian, hold on.
Sorry, dude. No worries. I had to, I ran downstairs and I didn't have my credit card. I had to run back upstairs. Oh, having a townhouse is a pain in the ass, <laughs> but a great a great joy also. Are you in uh, SoCal? I forgot mm-hmm. what city. L.A. Yeah, Los Angeles and Santa Monica specifically. Oh, Santa Monica. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll be living in uh, San Diego. What time of the year? August through December of next year, I'll be in San Diego. Very cool. Yeah, I'll uh, be moving a lot next year. Definitely, definitely down to hang out. Cool. Looking forward to it. All right. I'm still recording. You are too, right? Yeah, I am too. <clears throat> okay, so Loom Network. What's going on with them? These guys are just constantly pumping out new stuff and really code and execution and product first focus team it seems like get stuff out there that's useful right yeah they must have over 100 people working for them at this point they (laughs) they're very productive um so they've um actually finished their kickstarter and i was reading that they are issuing two million non-fungible tokens which is the playing cards that are gifts or rewards for their Kickstarter contributors. And uh, that's big news. That's pretty huge. Um, that kind of, those transactions, had they not implemented the changes that we're about to discuss, would definitely have broke the network a lot more <laughs> than CryptoKitties. So they were able to successfully drop, did they already do that? The two million odd item They did, drop? they did, and I checked in the game's live, but it's for contributors or early adopters only. So gotcha. um, I didn't get to see. The way that I worked on the Loom Network was through Crypto Zombies. So my airdrop of the um, zombie that I built during the tutorial that they set up um, should be coming soon after their release. Wow! And and how do you feel about that? As a because there that is such a cool course too. The Loom Network, you know, in their interest in advancing blockchain development and to bring on board new developers, you know, they know how hard it is to 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 get onto smart contracts even as an existing uh, technical person like with a lot of experience. They built Zombie Battleground, is it? Where it teaches you how to build a smart contract. And then I didn't know this. They actually mint a non-fungible token that they give to you? Yeah. Yeah. So um, That must feel it pretty was great. Zombie like, you, Battleground you get, is you the card You get to learn game. all this stuff. And then <laughs> you learn all this stuff. And then, uh, then they give you a little uh, collectible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Crypto Zombies is this game. Um, it's really similar to Codecademy. Uh, in its style of teaching and it's fun um, they actually have you eat a crypto kitty by teaching you how oh, to interact with already deployed smart contracts on the Genius. ethereum network uh, <laughs> that's hilarious yeah they're great at building interoperability um, and their product shows it uh, it's yeah and and you know they are a plasma chain Op, like t- protocol right like they're they're trying to help dap developers build layer two 
applications that that can scale, right? Yes. So and, they have and, this API yeah. in which you can deploy onto their side chain. So as a DApp developer, instead of deploying to the Ethereum mainnet, you can deploy to their Plasma chain. And their way of keeping this decentralized is by having validators. Um, delegated proof of stake, kind of. Well, it has a staking mechanism. Um, but it's essentially um, a blockchain that works uh, off of the same rules as the root blockchain. And it has completely different properties because of how they set it up. Yeah, and, and I know famously, you know, Loom had said that EOS could be run as a sidechain of Loom <laughs> on, on top of Ethereum. Like they could deploy EOS with Loom um, and it would be way more secure because it would have the, the security uh, fundamentals of Ethereum at the, at the, back, uh, at the backbone. Yeah, I think uh, the, it was kind of like a tongue-in-cheek type way, but EOS <laughs> yeah. was essentially um, sold as the Ethereum killer because they were trying to scale level one. And the fact that Loom, sh very shortly after EOS uh, mainlet launched, already has a layer two solution and not just a state channel solution, but a plasma chain solution, which is more advanced, um, has slightly different security guarantees. And interestingly enough uh, manages to have the security guarantees of the ethereum mainnet um, yet still have the transaction throughput of something like eos just goes to show that um, a lot of the blockchain space just needs to be creative in its engineering and you don't always have to compromise certain things in order to get all of the aspects that you want right um, they're hard I mean, engineering I think, uh, problems, but there yeah. are solutions out there, and this is a good one. I mean, ultimately, the, the fact that the crypto space is so open and all the code is shared and publicly auditable, it makes it really beneficial that other people are tackling the same problem from different angles. I mean, you look at the diversity of ETH uh, clients for you know different different programming languages that you can use. There's constant development on layer one, layer two. You know, we're thinking about even layer three and other solutions. You've got competing protocols um, that run the gamut of hybrid, centralized, decentralized, totally different security models and proof of stake, proof of work and proof of intelligence, proof of storage. Like there's so many different consensus mechanisms. There's inner inner blockchain communications tools like Cosmos and others that are trying to even go a layer above blockchain um, and, and the root protocol. So like, there's so much advancement happening at so many levels across the ecosystem. The cool thing is, is that all these teams can benefit no matter what project these things are originating on. I bet you the Ethereum researchers and the core team are watching Zilliqa very closely. Zilliqa is launching a fully sharded proof of stake system at launch, right? Yeah. Um, this is a great pilot program for what Ethereum is trying to do. Right. I, I don't see these as competitors. I see us all competing with the broader Web 2.0 mature internet monopolies. That's who we're competing with. We should all work together.
Right. And the uh, Tezos mainnet that we were talking about previously is a good example of a delegated proof of stake um, mechanism. And the lessons that are learned while this is being deployed and being used in the real world um, are also going to help Ethereum, right? Totally. Because they have to do their own implementation. EOS is its own uh, delegated proof of stake system, and there are clear uh, issues with um, how the protocol and how the issue has evolved. And, and it's better in a way that some of these smaller, newer projects are taking on the riskier assumptions and doing them before, you know, the more valuable protocol Ethereum uh, has a need to implement them. So let's take even DAI, you know, the stable coin from Maker. Maker is a uh, a, a set of maker and dire they're smart contracts on top of ethereum if die becomes the the stable coin to compete with tether or any of the others out there that could be a multi-billion dollar uh, application effectively on top of ethereum and i don't want ethereum to be experimenting with crazy new technologies when we have a multi-billion dollar applications living on top that are relied on by everyone in the crypto space i mean um i'd rather those those smaller teams figure that stuff out and let us learn from it you know right and the benefits of having first of all i think blockchain interoperability still has a long way to go um cosmos as you were saying is definitely going to be able to uh provide um, another layer of interoperability polka dot as well um but they aren't completely working yet so um the fact that these networks are deployed separately um allows for really rapid progress and it allows for risk in uh to be taken in spaces that don't have a legacy right everything that ethereum does you have to think okay is this going to be backwards compatible and then after a certain point ethereum has to be stabilized enough because which is kind of strange to say <laughs> because <laughs> ethereum already has billions of dollars worth of value tied up in it um, yet it's commonly agreed that ethereum as it is now will not remain and it's already untenable i think the transaction um, pool is 95 percent full on average if not a hundred percent during peak usage hours and it's uh it's going to look completely different in the near future so if there are new protocols that are um, being experimented and developed and because this is an open source ecosystem i think the best ideas will win out um, but i feel that it would be better if these types of protocols would win out in an interoperable um, world right because yeah. If you can actually transfer value seamlessly from one network to the other, then you don't necessarily lose um, the stakes from like having Ether and all of a sudden um, Definity becomes like the new standard uh, blockchain, right? It, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the way that I look at this is just, you know, being patient with the development because those layers of abstraction, they happen... They evolve kind of in, in cycles and it takes time for one layer of abstraction to get mature to the point where you can get to the next right if people had tried to build 
distributed applications before Ethereum launched, like they would have had to build their own Ethereum to do that, right? right so right. you had to wait for Ethereum to get fully baked um, before you could do that. And and similarly, we're seeing this kind of maturity grow um, in in the ecosystem where you know some protocols are going with formal verification out the gate and with uh, functional programming languages as their starting point for security um, con constraints. And that, that is way more strict than what Ethereum um, put in place. But Ethereum, in, in, in large part, uh, has skipped over that milestone because, because the, Ethereum is a $20 billion network. It's de facto secure because it hasn't been hacked. And so you have companies like Dow, uh, Maker and Dai, where they've just, they've just completed the first major uh, formally verified distributed application. It's been fully audited, it's fraud proof, fraud proofs have been published, and the multi-collateral DAI code is ready to use on a Ethereum protocol that has not itself been formally verified. It just happens to hold $20 billion of, of value and so must be secure. So it's, it's, it's interesting, but Ethereum as the, at the, as the protocol itself will have to get to a point where it's stable, it's slowing down in development, and itself is getting formal verification um, as, a, a, as a base constraint on new development. And we talked about that in previous episodes, how that may naturally occur. And Vitalik is you know, supportive of slowing down development, just not right now. Yeah, so uh, to paraphrase what he said, um, less innovation on layer one in the long term, but it's necessary in the short term so that you could position yourself to take advantage of the changes as you see them coming. Um, like we were talking about with the WebAssembly um, Ethereum virtual machine, eWassum. Right. And uh, that's kind of how I approach this too. I kind of see something that's happening that um, I'm reasonably comfortable assuming will be the future. And I kind of just make a technical decision to either dedicate uh, sufficient time to educate and learn to be able to keep up with the progress and kind of be ready once the technology is there to be able to use. Um, yeah, I, I feel it's difficult to actually be able to wait for things to be like ready for use, um, <laughs> especially in the blockchain space. Ethereum is the perfect example. Ethereum is probably not going to be uh, able to be formally ver verified because it's too open-ended and there's really simple design decisions that they could have done to like kind of alleviate this right so if you don't have loops or if you don't have recursion then you can be easily formally verified or it would be easier to make it formally verified but if you restrain or restrict what you can do with the software from the beginning then you close opportunities that you might not have foreseen right mm. so um Dai is making a multi-collateral uh, stablecoin, but the thing is, is that it's built on Ethereum, and it's that flexibility, that openness, that has permitted it to maintain this kind of um, huge network effect of developers, people interested. Everyone's projecting their own vision of the future, and they're starting from Ethereum and kind of rebuilding. Um, and this has changed. I mean. The people who built Ethereum originally started from Bitcoin, so it's uh, it's just going to be a progression that's going to be similar. But I think yeah. people are just going to kind of see or envision what they want out of a system, 
and start building as if it was there already. And I think those are going to be the really interesting projects. People that I mean, can what build you're, what before you it's find, ready. I think you're 100% right, and that's what's driving the advancement in the ecosystem today. You have you know, the companies that are trying to build real products. Uh, they're the ones going out there and innovating the protocols, right? Because they have to. Spank Chain, Loom, um, Grid, Plus, you know, a, a lot of these companies that we've talked about recently or today are, are, are innovating by necessity, right? Um, and and you know we're gonna we're gonna continue to be supportive of that. I think on the point of um, you know Ethereum's development and long term strategy, uh, kind of the final topic here is is a just a highlight of an improve uh, an EIP and Ethereum improvement proposal fourteen eighteen. Um, which is about storage payments, which is a new concept in Ethereum and something that I'm not sure is committed for Ethereum 2.0, but, but it's a big problem today. And the problem is um, by storing smart contracts that are always available whenever somebody wants to, to use them, there's a lot of data being stored and, and dormant um, waiting for a user. Maybe it's an old smart contract that hasn't been used in a long time or a low volume smart contract all of these nodes have to store it and people aren't paying for that storage. And so this improvement proposal is about rent payments for storage. Can you, can you highlight some of this information? Like break this down for us. So, um, I can't really go into details cause it's just a proposal, but the idea is that, um, storing something on Ethereum today, um, Assuming that there's going to be uh, a long-term development on this uh, on this protocol on this chain, it's going to be cheaper uh, to store data, and it's there permanently. And maintaining availability of that data uh, far into the future creates this issue in which you're carrying dead weight from the chain. You always need to have it available somewhere. And um, it's part of the global state of Ethereum. The It's kind of a perverse incentive in which if you kind of litter or have a um, state that's no longer being used lying around and it's there for free, then it's as if it's um, a tax on future developers that have to pay the uh, resources to maintain all of the previous uh, transactions, whether it's actually being used or not. Mm. So yeah, the that's question an interesting is, way to frame it. It's like yeah. a free rider problem, right? Where the the active users are actually paying for the inactive users to right. have access to to uh, those smart contracts. So in Bitcoin, you can basically um, go through the entire state, but then you end up with accounts that have balances and then you don't really need to keep track of accounts that don't have balances, right? Yeah, and it makes sense that in Ethereum, they'd want to build it in. I think, um, you know, what I've read suggests that, you know, they're going to switch to burning Ether directly for these kinds of payments to put upward pressure on the um, the price of Ether so that, that there is scarcity of that Ether. Um, and it's tied directly to to the, the price of storage as well as the price of compute resources. Um, but yeah, it's a recognition of another you know major flaw right at the protocol level, layer that 
uh, layer one that they wouldn't have been able to predict, you know, three right. years ago. So, I mean, you can call yeah. it a major flaw. It's also kind of like a nice advantage um, in the sense that if you own a crypto kitty, you forever have possession of said crypto kitty right. um, until infinity. Yeah, right? that's a good point. And, yeah. Um, but the a concept of like having um, a lot of people basically every node if how the uh, software is currently running it maintaining a copy or at least knowledge of the location of your crypto kitty um, might seem excessive when you just look forward 20 30 years Um, but it's literally like part of the uh, data structure that is blockchain right so. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot to chew on. Definitely glad that there's people way smarter than me working on it, because uh, my head just spins thinking about it. But in any case, uh, this has been a great episode. Thanks uh, so much, Lucian, for your time, and, and it's always fun chatting with you. We'd like to thank the Bitcoin Podcast Network for publishing uh, Dose of Ether, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Catch you later.